If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. Losing the things that matter most is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to cause you to go away sad like the wealthy man in the Gospel of Matthew. We grieve deeply because we've loved so much, because we've lost something that mattered, that changed us, that shaped us. This is an excerpt from Emerging from the Rubble by Glenn Siepert. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We're talking with Dr. Glenn Siepert today. He's a father, blogger, podcaster, and content creator at the What If Project. He has a master's in divinity and a doctorate in ministry, right, from Alliance Theological Seminary. Yep. And recently published a book about grief, which we are going to touch on in a bit. So, Glenn, we're so excited to have you. This has been a long time coming. We have been chasing you down, and we're excited <laughs> to chat. So I don't do this very often, So, I, but I said yes to you guys because you guys are my friends. Hey, <laughs> you're honored. And I love what you do, so happy to be here. <laughs> we're so honored. Can you tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like? what your family looks like, and outside of all of this sort of theological mumbo-jumbo, what makes your heart come alive? Yeah, so uh, my my wife's name is Dana, and she's actually in cosmetology school, about to graduate next week, and she'll be starting her internship and getting her own chair eventually and building up her client list, and she's she's like so good at what she does. She has a real gift for using her words and using her talents to just make people feel beautiful. So getting her her license has been something she's always wanted to do. So she's she's going for it. And uh, we have one child, a daughter. Her name is Jordan, uh, Jordan Joy. And she's six in first grade, going on 35, maybe studying <laughs> to be a lawyer in her free time. I don't really know, but she's doing really good in school. And she's, uh, you know, tackling the changes and challenges that come with growing up and she's just so fun to watch and just be part of it all and uh me like you said i have a podcast called the what if project and we can talk more about that uh, later but i'm having a blast with it i do social media for a whole bunch of people alexander john shia choir publishing bart ehrman uh, a few other podcasters as well so just creating lots and lots of content for people and my titles kind of range from social media wizard to social media uh, director to social media guy, whatever people it is that they want to call me. But my days are, you know, school pickup, drop off, doing some stuff around the house, preparing podcast interviews. You just have like one or two a week that I record, creating lots and lots of content. Mm-hmm. You can see a skateboard behind me. I'm trying to ride it and not kill myself. But I do that sometimes just to get out of the house a little bit. Lots of books. I'm an avid reader. But my heart, you know, what brings it alive? Uh, obviously, my family, you know, I love, my, I adore my daughter. My wife is my best friend. We'll be married for 13 years next week, October 2nd. Mm. So we've been together for a long time. Uh, but the thing I think that really 
makes me tick because I just love to create stuff, you know, creating things that encourage people, inspire people, bring other people's hearts alive. Ever since I was a kid, like I was creating painting, drawing, Hmm. building forts, you know, building Legos, doing all that kind of stuff. And it's probably why I love helping people create stuff. Now people say like, how do you keep track of all the stuff you create? I'm like, I don't know. Like it's, it's a challenge, but for some reason I find it, I find a lot of joy in it. So I've never really had a job before that I enjoyed getting up to do in the morning, but I feel like that's the season of life that I'm in. So yeah, yeah, those are my days. I love that. So I just have a quick question for you. What in the world made you go to seminary if you're such a creative? Wow. How much time do we have? <laughs> When I went to college, I studied youth ministry and Bible. And I felt like when I got to the end, I felt like I wasn't done yet. Like I just had more things that I wanted to do. And so my advisor recommended I go to seminary. And so I was like, all right, why not? You know, I like school. I'm a nerd. So I'll go to seminary. And I think like looking back on it, what I really enjoyed the most about seminary was creating papers and creating presentations, creating sermons. And like in that world, that's like all you do. And so for me, like sitting down at my desk with a stack of books and my sticky notes and my highlighters and putting something together, Mm -hmm. mapping it out on a whiteboard was like, just brought my heart alive. And so I just thrived in that world. But it was all the, like, you know, all the stuff we'll talk about in a little bit, I'm sure is the stuff that kind of got in the way of those, those kinds of things. So, yeah. I love that. I mean, you just kind of ooze creativity, like all over the place. And I love that you it seeps into your relationship with your daughter. Like it's so, it's really sweet. You're very open about kind of just like what your life looks like on social media. So I feel like I just see all these things, like you're playing Gabby's dollhouse with your daughter and you're playing Barbies <laughs> and like you're, you're, you are, you're like constantly creating spaces for creativity and fun. And I just think it's really, really cool. And it's just fun to watch. So thank you. outside thank you. of, you know, all the things that you have to do, I feel like that creativity just seeps into like all of the nooks and crannies of your life. Thank you. We love some Gabby's dollhouse in our place. Ugh, look, <laughs> it's it. the best, right? Love it's it. The best. That guy's crazy. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so you have a moniker or whatever you want to call it, your podcast name, but it's also yep. your website name, right? The what if project. Yep. There's always a story behind a chosen name. Always. Correct. Always. So tell us yours. Yeah, so I'm I'm really proud of this this podcast. Like it's been thrilling just to kind of see how it's evolved and grown and kind of what where where it's at. We're in our sixth year of the show, and it's crazy to think it's been that long. Because like I think back like on Jordan, she was a toddler, she was a baby when I started the thing, and now she's six. So it's like she's kind of journeyed along with me as this thing has kind of grown legs and started to walk. But you know, it actually stemmed from a paper that I had to write in the last class of my my doctoral program. So some background, as we mentioned, I went to a very evangelical seminary and I was rethinking all the things about my faith and all the people around me, right? Like they're, they're ready to graduate too, but they're, a lot of them were firmly holding on to their like very cemented ideas about God. All the while mine are like falling apart. They're like bursting at the seams and so about two years earlier uh, from this class, my, my wife had a miscarriage mm. and that was like a atomic bomb that just sort of hit all aspects of my faith, right? Like, God, how can you be all powerful? How can you be all loving and allow like our baby to die? Mm. Like that just made zero sense to me, no matter how much theology I knew, nothing fit together when it was like a very personal experience like that. And then when my wife got pregnant again, 
and my daughter was born, Jordan, she went to the NICU for a couple of days. And when she reached out, I had my hand in the tank, like for the first time to reach out to her. And when she reached out and she grabbed my finger and she touched me, it was like literal theological crisis in the middle of the NICU. Because again, like I immediately started to rethink because it was so ingrained in me, things like original sin Mm -hmm. and hell and like all these things. I'm like, how in the world could this child be born like a sinner? It doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm looking at my own flesh and blood like it just does not make any sense and so by the time i arrived in this doctoral class in my very evangelical seminary you know i was like anything but evangelical but nobody in the world would know because i kept it very quiet because i didn't feel like i had a safe place at this level of my education to bring a lot of my questions and and my doubts and so the funny thing is, is that the professor for this class who he was an adjunct professor And he was also anything but evangelical. And I knew that because in the class, he was quoting people. He wasn't mentioning their names, but the quotes he was reading, I read the books. (laughs) So he was quoting Rob Bell. He was quoting Brian McLaren. And he was really pushing the buttons of some of the more conservative students in the room. And it looked like he was getting a rise out of it. Like it looked like he kind of enjoyed like pushing their buttons a little bit. And so, you know, we got the talking and it's obviously like anything, a long story, but For the final project, we had to write this paper where we would pitch this idea of how we were going to use the class material out in the real world to communicate the gospel. And so I came up with the idea, you know, for the for this podcast. Now, the class was like an intensive class, which is like it was like a week long. So we were on campus for, I think, like nine days and it was eight to nine hours a day, followed by coursework that we had to do at night. And since I live in North Carolina and the school is in New York, I had to go up there and get a hotel room for this week. And so for the final project, I was like so excited about this project. I went to Walgreens, which was next to the the, uh, the hotel, and I bought all these poster boards and I taped them all over the hotel room and I got a pack of Sharpies and I mapped out like all these ideas for this for this project. And I think like looking back, I think the cleaning people probably thought I was insane. Like I was mapping out some kind of blueprint for like a bomb or something. Like who knows what they thought. But I I called it, ended up calling it the what if project. Mm. And the way I positioned it in the paper was I was raised evangelical, like a lot of people. And I was taught that, you know, we're all born sinners. God's really mad at sin. He sent Jesus to die for sin. We believe in that. We go to heaven we don't believe in it, we go to hell, like that's the gospel. You know, I was taught that gay people are extra sinners. Abortion is extra evil. You know, the Bible is extra literal. We always vote Republican because Democrats are extra dumb, you know, all these different things. But (laughs) what if there are ways? Like, what if there are ways of thinking about all of these things, God, faith, Jesus, the gospel, heaven, hell, all the stuff that is different than what our very narrow tradition has handed us. And so I wrote the paper. Uh, I took a full year to really kind of brainstorm Mm. where this thing was going to go, how to put it together. Because a lot of people in the class, like they wrote the papers to get the grade and they were like these pie in the sky ideas. But for me, I felt like, I felt like even at that time, like this is something I really want to do. Like I actually want to do something Mm. with this and like make it work. So I wrote this blueprint. I took some time to put it together. Yeah, I ended up going to the Wild Goose Festival. You know, I met your dad. I met Pete Enns. I met Jared Baez, Brian McLaren, Barbara Brown Taylor. And I talked to a lot of them. And I ran this idea by them. And actually, Pete and Jared were two people who said, 
you should do that. You know, you should definitely give that a go. Like, I really think that would be good. And since that's the God ordained podcast, I thought I had to listen to what they had to say, you know? So I went and I gave it a shot, you know, and here we are all these years later, still stirring the pot and causing trouble. So that's kind of the background. (laughs) I love it. Stirring the pot and causing trouble. I love troublemaker. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, it is interesting how certain people come into your lives like, One of my pastors, actually, a friend of mine said to me, why do you love hell so much? And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean love hell? And he said, you should read XYZ book or listen to XYZ podcast or take XYZ class, I think, is what I ended up doing with Pete and Jared. And yeah, and then I started to listen like you. And then here we are. It's so funny to- I hate that podcast. It's I know. It's the worst. I can't even- and it trash you know. <laughs> total. Yeah, total total trash and those dudes oh my gosh yes. <laughs> so it's so cool how i think some things birth other things mm-hmm. you know like say their podcast birthed your podcast obviously liz stud helped to literal literal yeah literally literally birth from, her. from his we kind of birthed ours so it's i was so attracted to your podcast glenn because of the idea just the name of it the what if i think that's the question all of us start with when we go down this deconstructing journey what if hell is not real like what if i do love hell so much and why do i love it so much (laughs) you know what if original sin is not really the case what if what i believed all my life is wrong yeah (laughs) that's right Mm -hmm. so yeah that's really cool i love it so you already talked a little bit about your faith background but if you could Mm -hmm. sum it up in one word or phrase what would it be yeah i think i would describe it as as like a as a puzzle Hmm. and i say that because like Jordan's really into puzzles now. So I think about this kind of stuff a lot. So if you look at like a puzzle, right? Like before it's together, like it's just a, it's a mess. You know, there's the light pieces and there's, there's, uh, there's the dark pieces and it doesn't look like anything fits, but when you start putting it together, you know, like a beautiful picture begins to emerge. And I think that like my faith is like that because my faith upbringing had some really bright spots, had some really good it wasn't all bad. It's easy to talk about all the bad things, but it wasn't all bad. There was a lot of good things that I brought with me. And there were some horrific things as well, some really bad things that I'm looking back on and trying to kind of sort through in my own journey. But now headed towards my will be 42 in January, I feel like the picture is like just beginning to emerge as pieces are coming together. And as much as I want to get rid of some of the stuff, you know, and wish it never happened, it did happen but it helped make me, you know, who I am today. So as those pieces start fitting together, I just start seeing something really unique emerge. And it's nothing like I thought it was going to look. <laughs> it looks a lot different today than I thought it was going to look 15 <laughs> years ago, but uh, it's beautiful nonetheless. So. Yeah. I'm always curious with people. I mean, you and I grew up very similarly. We've talked about. Yeah. I'm always curious with people. Do you feel like some of the harder parts of your faith background, would you consider those to have been traumatic or are you someone who feels like, okay, I can see where those were not helpful, right? Or not okay, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like I've internalized it into like my nervous system. Or do you feel like it's greatly impacted you in, in an actually traumatic fashion? 
Yeah, I think that there's there's some things. It's easy to say like everything was traumatic, and I, I did that for a while. Like I was like everything was traumatic. Everything from the church and my private Christian school was all you know a mess. But now that I'm like really sorting through stuff, I feel like some of it was just bad theology, bad teaching, lazy theology, you know that kind of thing. But I think there's a couple things I would say are traumatic. Like for instance, and I've talked about this on social media before, like all this rapture talk that's been going on lately, super triggering for me because when I was in the sixth grade, our Bible teacher in our school took us through the book of revelation using like left behind and the movie, a thief in the night, that seventies movie, we had to watch it in class. Mm -hmm. And she used that as like the commentary for revelation. So I literally went home at night. I cried myself to sleep. I think every night for a year. And I never told my parents Mm -hmm. because I was scared that they would just kind of tell me what I wanted to hear to, calm me down mm-hmm. and that they wouldn't really believe the right things then I would be a fail a failed evangelist my parents would go to hell or they'd be left behind and I would have to go to heaven and live without them so I like, literally had these nightmares for like years about these things and that stuff today like even though I don't believe that anymore when I hear rapture on the news or something I'm like oh my god <laughs> like the the Christian soldier inside is like what if you're wrong you know what if yeah, what if there yeah. really is a rapture yeah and I start to get nervous again I have yes. to really calm myself down and help myself go back to like different things I've learned in the last years to kind of kind of take myself down a few notches <laughs> it's interesting that you're saying that because even this weekend with all that rapture talk from this weekend we're taping this at the end of September yeah I was in a store with my daughter and, and my husband, we couldn't find him. We just couldn't find him for a minute. And I made a joke to her. Oh my gosh, it's the rapture. Where is he? But that joke does stem from that yep. inside of like trying to calm myself down. Yep. You don't believe that anymore. Because I, like you, I remember coming home from school and if my parents weren't there, this was in like I was like 12 or 13 around the same time. And I had a plan in place to calm myself down and it was to turn on Christian radio. And if they were still there, then I was okay. And then my older brother said to me, Oh my gosh, don't you know, they tape those things so far in advance. You won't know if the rapture happened for at least a couple hours. (laughs) And I mean, they were being funny and mean. Yeah. yeah. It was typical of older siblings, but yeah, yep. I had a whole plan in place to calm my nerve system down. Yep. If I couldn't find my parents, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. It's really it's interesting how those things just get so ingrained in your body because I think it's true what both of you guys said. Like over the weekend, I'm like, oh, this is just like total BS. Yep. But my insides are like, but what if it's not? But what if it's not? But what if it's not? You're not safe. Are you safe? Is everyone you love safe? Like you literally go back to that yep. place, and there has been periods of time throughout even the last like 20 years or so, like 9-11, right? Like these very like traumatic events that happen where you immediately go to this place of like, oh my gosh, this is the end of everything because Mm -hmm. we're told that it's going to happen, right? Or like COVID. I remember feeling that way when COVID started, like this very intense nervous system response to the fact that this really huge thing was happening that could mean the end of the world. You know, it's, So it, it it just seeps in and affects us greatly. It really does. Really, really greatly. And that's like a huge one for a lot of people. I mean, that, that, oof, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I found myself this weekend 
calming my nervous system by going and looking at the funny stuff on social media that people in the deconstructing community <laughs> were posting, right? And I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm not alone. Right. I'm not alone. Other people think this is nuts right. too. <laughs> and so it is It is just yeah. interesting how we do so much of the things that do calm us down. And the you're not yeah. alone is a big one, right? Yeah. Yeah, I saw a meme. Somebody said... um, what a disappointing rapture. They're all still here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I love that. That's, that's amazing. All right. all right. Well, the quote we read from the beginning is from your recent book, mm-hmm. Emerging from the Rubble. Why were you so passionate about writing this particular book? So I started writing the book shortly after my dad was diagnosed with cancer in December of 2022. And so the the original idea that I had, again, brainstorming this creative idea, was to write four books. And it was going to be one book on each of the four Gospels, where I would give kind of like a detailed explanation of the background and the context of, of each Gospel, and then take 20, 30, 40 passages from that Gospel and try to read the passage through the lens of those first century readers and kind of wonder how would they have received those stories in their context? And then parallel that to how can we then receive those, you know, things in our context. And so the focus of this book is is Matthew. And a lot of scholars believe that it was written to this group of Jewish Christians who were living in the wake of Rome's uh, destruction of their temple, you know, which was like the center of, of their universe. And so with every story that I wrote, I tried to approach it with that lens in front of me and kind of wonder like how would someone going through immense loss where their entire life is flipped upside down, the most important thing in their world has been stolen from them. Like how would they receive the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 or healing this person or the genealogy or, or whatever. And so as I wrote it, you know, my dad, he started to get worse and I began to realize it was a very hard realization, but, you know, my temple, one of the centers of my universe was beginning to to crumble. And very soon it was inevitable that it was going to be stolen from me. And so all of a sudden those those other three books that I had in mind to write, like they didn't matter anymore. Like, you know, the, the plan changed, so to speak. And this book, I began to realize like this was the book that I need to write and, and put together, you know, a book about loss and heartache and broken dreams and collapsed temples and things not going the way they're supposed to go. Like that became my focus. And I wrote it throughout the course of his battle with cancer. You know, I literally finished it not even a month after he passed away. So in, in many ways, this book was a companion for me, you know, on my journey mm-hmm. of of loss. And the last few chapters, I can remember sitting here at my desk, literally weeping, like as I typed the words, you know, because it was just, it was so real to me. And I felt like I was really able to get, obviously the circumstances are different, you know, Matthew's readers and mine, but I really felt like I was able to get in touch with the loss that those people might've been facing. And that loss is what gave me the drive to kind of finish the book, write the book, then really kind of reframe it around the story with my dad, because I wasn't thinking of going in that direction in the beginning. Once I got to like the end of the book, I'm like, yeah, this is what this this is how I need to frame the book. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it kind of came together. Mm. 
That's beautiful. Can I just read that quote again? Because yeah, please. That we've read from the beginning that came from your book, because I think we can dive a little deeper here. Mm -hmm. Losing the things that matter most is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to cause you to go away sad, like the wealthy man in the gospel of Matthew. We grieve deeply because we loved so much, because we lost something that mattered, that changed us, that shaped us. And like you said, I think you are pretty vocal on social media about your grief process. I mean, as much as you probably can be on social media, but we really mm -hmm. appreciate your vulnerability. And mm -hmm. we both watched it play out after the death of your dad and during the process of him passing away. Mm -hmm. How do you think the new faith that you have, the new lens with which you view God, how do you think your grief process could be different than maybe what you might have believed, say, 10 or 15 years ago? Yeah. So I think, you know, 10 years ago, I would have, I would have pushed my grief aside mm -hmm. and I would have just kind of gone on with my life. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I really, I hate to say this and I, I hate to make everything about the church, but in this case, it really is, you know, all my years in church ministry, being a pastor, my internships, being a youth pastor, like it taught me to respond that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I was talking to my wife about this because I was really really distraught that like I didn't I didn't know how to grieve well mm. I, I remember when my dad passed away I was like two days later I was talking to her and it hit me that after I got my master's in 2000 I think it was like 2008 I pastored a really small church with a very old congregation and so they, they all could have been my grandparents that's how old it was and in the first year we had 10 people pass away mm. and so I had to preside over 10 you know I was the only pastor right? 26 years old. And I have to do these 10 funerals. That's 10 funeral services. That's putting 10 people in the ground. That's 10 sermons or homilies. You know, it's 10 meetings with 10 different distraught families. Some died of cancer, old age. One person actually committed suicide. He was like 40 years old. Never had that experience in my life, but he's 40 years old. He took his own life. And there were so many people that came to the service. We had to put seats in the parking lot. The place was just absolutely packed. I, I was so beside myself. I didn't know what to do, but life had to go on, right? I was the pastor, only pastor. And so I had to do all the things. I didn't feel like I had time to feel anything. And so I remember there's this one week in particular. I'll, I'll never forget this week. It was vacation Bible school week at the school. So we have tons of families running around, new people, all these kids, stuff like that. And I was running the whole thing with my wife, who was my, my fiance at the time. And I had a regular worship service on Sunday, you know, with the adult Sunday school class that I taught. VBS that following week with the weekly Bible study, prayer meeting, normal things that we had. But then thrown into the mix was a midweek funeral, followed by another funeral that Sunday. The VBS ended right after the worship service, Sunday school, all those different things. And so each funeral had to have its own sermon with its own service, you know, two different wakes, two different meetings with two different families, making time for all their grief and trying to like comfort them and console them. And I had to do it all. You know, there was, there was literally like nobody else to do it. And so although I had obviously the feelings and emotions that come with death, like I felt like I had to push it down. I had to ignore it so that the kingdom of God, you know, could be spread. Mm -hmm. You know, and looking back on it, I think I was also afraid that like, if I would be able, if I let these emotions out, would I be able to recover quickly enough to keep my job? Mm -hmm. 
Because the reality is that if I let grief overtake me for too long, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the elders are going to start get, are getting a little bit concerned if the pastor is not able to kind of keep it together, you know, day after day and, and week after week. But this time when I was riding home from the hospital, I remember I was driving home, tears in my eyes. And I'm like, I really need to not respond this way to my grief this time. Like, I really need to embrace the grief and make some space for the grief. Mm. I need to pause everything and just really feel whatever it is I have to feel. And it went against everything I felt inclined to do, you know, because I felt inclined to, I got podcast interviews to do. I got things I got to do. I got things on the calendar. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Do everything for everybody else and put my own feelings aside like I always did. But I felt like this time it's got to be different. And so when I look back Mm -hmm. over my life, I think that's probably the biggest difference between grief then and grief now. Well, it's like another thing to relearn in many ways, right? Because it's like, if you're growing up thinking of death as this sort of like gateway to God, right? It's kind of like the ultimate blessing. Like I've heard people say that, right? And most funerals are like this celebration of life. Like most funerals that I've been to, evangelical-based funerals are like a little off-putting because everyone's trying to be so like happy in this sort of weird way. Right. And so it doesn't leave a lot of space for grief. And so when we actually, like you're doing, say, okay, I need to stare this in the face this time. You've never actually done that before. Right. Mm -hmm. So not only is it a hard process, but it's a new process, which is just, it's a double whammy in a lot of senses. And I wonder if you, if you felt that way, like you're learning as you're doing it and it's tricky. Yeah. Like I remember I said to my wife, like, I don't know what I'm feeling right now. I don't know what this is. You know, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I feel like it's crippling. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's invigorating. I feel like it's mm-hmm. freeing, but yet I feel like it's crushing. Like, I don't know what this is. Like I had so many different feelings mm-hmm. and I was like, I never experienced any of these things before. And I'm 41 years old. You know, like, and I just feel like right. part of me felt angry because I felt like I was really robbed of those things growing up because like my grandmother passed away when I was in seminary. And again, like, I felt like I have papers to write. I got things to do. Like, I can't allow myself to be overtaken by this. So I pushed a lot of that away. Even like when we had our miscarriage, I pushed a lot of that away, you know, because I just didn't, Mm. I didn't feel like I had space for it. I felt like I had other things I had to do. People were relying on me. God was relying on me and I don't have time Mm. to stop. Right. We'll be right back to our podcast episode, but we wanted to give a shout out to those of you who are keeping the podcast churning here at the Deconstructing Mamas. So thank you, Heather Tilly, Susan Enns, and Melanie Bishop. We so appreciate you. For just $3 a month, we provide a safe and private Facebook community where you can ask your questions, get encouragement, and a few more surprises along the way. Now back to our episode. Do you think that hope of heaven in the old mindset contributed to the shoving aside of grief? Like we're almost not allowed because there's something so much greater. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge thing. I mean, it's always about, I felt like in the church, you had some leeway to grieve, but the the time period is only so short because you got to realize that there's better things ahead. You know, God is or we're gonna we're gonna go and get our crown and get to heaven. We're gonna see all of our family again. We're gonna close our eyes here and wake up to a celebration. Everything's gonna be great, you know. So like it's it's almost like spiritual bypassing. Like you're just gonna bypass all these feelings that you have now, and we're gonna cover it with all the spiritual jargon, mm-hmm. and we're gonna try to make it all feel better. Yeah. When in reality, it just it feels even worse when you do that. Right. Yeah. 
I remember my first real experience with this idea of death as being this like horrific thing mm -hmm. that internally, like I felt as a child and growing up, like I was like, ugh, this is awful. But I didn't feel like I was allowed to feel that way was just through some of Rachel Held Evans writings. Yeah. Because she talked about that a lot. And I remember yeah. like the first time that I really I was reading like um, I think it was like one of her Lent blogs. And I was just like, oh, this is awful. Like, I hate that this is reality. And I think that we, yeah. we should feel that way. Like it should feel awful because it is awful. And I even remember like at her funeral, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was such a service of mourning. There was sort of this liturgical way of just mourning this person because it was awful. Yeah. And regardless of what comes after, right. Death is horrible for the people who are left here. Yeah. And the process of dying can be incredibly horrible, right? As well for the people who are suffering. Yeah. And so yeah. to ignore that and to not give it its proper place in the world right. is not okay. I don't even know what the word is, but it's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's harmful really. Right. That's right. Yeah. You brought up Rachel Held Evans funeral. That was the first thing I thought of actually when Glenn was talking about doing all your funerals, I thought of watching her funeral in particular and thinking how different it was. Yeah. Yeah. Just how much there was room. I mean, and that was such a shocking death, right? But I think just how much room there was for grief and pain and suffering. And that's so much a part of the human experience that I know for me as an evangelical growing up was not really allowed or embraced. Yeah. And so there was only like half of me that was allowed to be yep. part of you know, my human, only half of humanity was allowed in my life, yeah. like my humans. Yeah. So yeah, ah, it's, it's, it's really cool to watch somebody like you, Glenn, to do this and say, what if the grief process can be very different yeah. and more healing and whole? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so within a more faith, that's more maybe allowing for mystery and pain. Sure that doesn't have the afterlife wrapped up in a nice bow. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the like maybe tangible things that helped you to walk this journey or maybe some intangible things? Yeah. So I like, guess as, as odd as it might sound, the, the idea of it all being a mystery has been like really helpful for me hmm. because, you know, like you said, like I, I used to have it all figured out. Like it was wrapped up in this nice, neat box with a bow on the top. There's no gray area. It's either, you know, my dad believed the right things. Now he's in heaven. He didn't believe the right things. Now he's in hell. Hopefully there's a way out. Maybe Jesus has some kind of trapdoor plan. I don't know. But that's the end of the story. There's nothing that I can do about it. But nowadays, like, I just don't know. You know like, I don't know what's on the other side. But I believe that something is. And I believe that it has to be good because I believe that God or the divine or whatever is good. If God is not good, then I don't know what to do. <laughs> the whole thing goes up in smoke. So, I mean, in my mind is God has to be good. Afterlife has to have some some goodness to it. And and for me, I take a lot of heart in Jesus's words from the Gospel of Thomas. So the Gospel of Thomas was you know, this first century book of just these random sayings of Jesus. And I don't know why, but there's this one that has really become like my mantra over the last six months. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, whatever it is you want to call it. And Jesus says that the kingdom is both within you and outside of you. And for whatever reason, that's just really 
gives me like such a beautiful picture mm. because like now when I think of my dad, he lives inside of me. He lives inside of my memories. He lives inside of my heart. Nobody can ever, ever, ever take that away. Mm. And he also lives outside of me. He's all around me because heaven is right here. You know, there's a, there's a veil that we can't see, but if it's a very thin veil. If we could peel it back, I think that we would see so much that's right here, you know, all around us. That's been one thing that's really helped me. Another thing that's helped me is uh, some things from like the Buddhist tradition. Now, there's this idea that it took me a little while to grasp because it felt very strange outside of my my normal thinking, but that death isn't really death. Mm. Like it's just ourselves unmanifesting here and then re-manifesting somewhere else. Mm. And they compare death to like the waves of the ocean, right? Like they say that the ocean is the ocean. And these waves, you know, rise up and they manifest out of the ocean for a specific period of time. And when they do, it's beautiful and it's amazing and it's majestic and it's wonderful. But eventually, you know, they crash into the beach, they crash into a rock, and then they fall back into the ocean from which from which they came. And so although the wave, you know, ceases to be, uh, it never ceases to be the the ocean or the the larger body of water from from which it came. And so for me, like I've been thinking a lot about like my dad and stuff. And I, I feel like for me, like that's what death has become. You know, like we, we manifest mm. out of the ocean of God for 60, 70, 80, whatever years of life. But eventually we crash into a rock. You know, my dad crashed into cancer. Some people crash into old age, whatever. But we don't cease to be. Mm. We don't cease to exist. We just fall back into the ocean of God from which we came. And so although we don't exist. We do exist. We're just in a different form. You know, my dad still exists. He's just in a different form. He's back in the ocean and the ocean is still supporting the waves. Like I'm, I'm still a wave heading towards whatever it is I'm heading towards, but that ocean is supporting me. So I feel like my dad is in that ocean continuing to support me until one day I crash against my own rock, you know, and I can't see him, but I know that he's here. Yeah. And I sense that he's here whenever his favorite song randomly comes on the radio uh, whenever uh, his wind chimes blow out in the backyard when I'm mowing the lawn, you know, so I have these little signs that I feel like he's peeking behind the veil and letting me know, know that he's here. So, mm. yeah. I read this summer, You Are Here by Thich Nhat Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I'd never heard that idea of manifesting until I read that book. Yeah, before. that's where I got it from. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah I read it with my <laughs> girls and my niece and yeah. we... We were, it was really a powerful idea of the manifesting that we were just manifesting in different forms. And yeah. I'm still swirling around about that. So I appreciate that you kind of unpacked that for me because I've only read it just recently. And I kept saying, I don't get it. I don't understand. So thanks. That makes so much more sense. It's like the pastor who explained what I read. Scripture I, read I don't know I if that's like, the best way to explain it, but it's where I'm at. So yeah, that's really that's really really neat. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, love that. I love those connections, even though that I read in the book. And there you go. There he is. <laughs> uh, well, you're a super engaged dad, as Liz said at the beginning, playing. What is the name of it? Gabby's Dollhouse. The Gabby's Dollhouse. Gabby's Barbies, whatever she wants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> Can you just tell us, kind of, to step outside the grief thing for a minute? What's your like favorite part of fatherhood so far? I love Jordan's questions. She has such like an intriguing mind. I feel like the questions that she asks are things that, like, I think I've given her like a good answer. About something and then she has like an even 
deeper question and she just keeps <laughs> digging and i'm like <laughs> uh, like well i want to do something else you know because like it's like she gets to that point where you don't know what to say anymore but i think it's those kinds of conversations with her and kind of just seeing her mind develop and see how like she digs into things and i often wonder like where in the world is that going to take her in life because it's definitely gonna do something that's such a fun age for that my daughter lila is close to age as jordan yeah and she's similar and i thought that i wouldn't love the questions <laughs> but i think when you give yourself permission to not always have the answers yep. it becomes this really intriguing journey with your child to just sort of like try to figure it out together yeah which is really cool yeah but i think for a long time i think i thought oh if they ask a question like i need to know the answer yeah. <laughs> so giving yourself permission to be like this is what i think but like what do you think yeah right it ends up being just a really cool conversation we we were talking the other day about she was asking me about what school i went to when i was little and so i told her it was hawthorne christian academy and she has like no idea of what that means. And so she's like, you went to like an academy, like Nevermore Academy, like Wednesday. And I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> like, no, not like, uh, not like Wednesday. I said it was maybe, I don't know. But I said, uh, you know, they taught me a lot of things about God. And she's like, oh, were they all good things about God? I'm like, well, I said, you know, there were some things that were a little bit, a little bit difficult. And she goes, well, like what? And this is again, this is her asking me questions. I was like, well, so they, they taught me a lot about like a place called hell, you know, that people go to when they die, if they don't believe the right things. She goes, is that a real place? I'm like, well, I said, I used to think that it was. I said, I used to. I said, but, you know, I said, I think the cool thing about life is sometimes you can change your mind and you can change your ideas and you can grow. I said, so I don't believe that anymore. I said, but some people do and that's fine. She goes, well, I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> right. Then she's asking, how in the world could there be such a place you know, when God is so loving and she had all these different things she was just pulling together, which is interesting to see her take her own stance. And like, I gave her permission. Like I said to her, like, some people believe it and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I said, but you know, this is where I'm at in my life. And she just kind of jumped right in and put together all of her ideas. And it was just an interesting conversation. So. Right. That's so cool. I love that, that she is thinking like, if there's a God who's loving, that just cannot be the case. <laughs> yeah. And I have found that my greatest growth, some of my greatest growth has been from my kids' questions. Yeah. Like, I remember one of the very first questions. I have a son who's a five on the Enneagram. So that means he's the investigator. Right. And the questions that came out <laughs> of the kid, like he was five years old in kindergarten. And I think he met his first Jewish person mm -hmm. ever or maybe he understood that it was Jewish and what Jewish was. And he came home and he said, well, what about um, Jewish people? What do they believe? And I said, oh, well, they don't necessarily believe that Jesus is God. Because mm -hmm. of course he was being raised in the evangelical tradition. And then he said, but wasn't Jesus Jewish? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, if he was Jewish, did he believe in himself? Right. <laughs> and, I, and all of a sudden I thought, Oh my goodness, that's such a fantastic question to just ask yourself. Yeah. Like, how do those two things, like Judaism and Christianity, fit together? And this five year old is asking those big ones. And he also, in high school, came to me and said, I think everybody in the Bible had total schizophrenia. All those people <laughs> who are like hearing voices and stuff, they're just like schizophrenics. Put them in a courtroom today. That's right. And no one would believe them. Yeah. And that also started to provoke some thinking inside of me. Yeah. When we allow for our kids questions or to allow for curiosity within us yep. and not to shut them down yep. is when we can do almost the most growing and changing. Yeah, that's right.
Okay. So cool. <laughs> so good. I love that you guys get to do this with your kids younger. I feel <laughs> sad that I um, miss. I didn't miss out on it because eventually their questions took over my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, the difficult part of the last year with your daughter probably has been to walk uh, the death of your father. How did you communicate with her about her grandfather's death? And like, how did that feel to you? And what was really hard and maybe what surprised you? About maybe like two or three months before my dad passed away, one of our dogs passed away. Oh. So it was a really, really great spring in our house. We had a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, but uh, our dog's name was Snuffy. Hmm. And that was really Jordan's first experience with death. Hmm. And she took it really, really hard. Hmm. Um, we had to put her to sleep, the dog to sleep because she was in so much pain and so Jordan went to school, you know, say goodbye to her dog and everything. And we, my wife and I knew that was going to be the last time she was going to see her because we knew what we had to do when she went to school. And then when she came home, you know, her dog wasn't there and she was just absolutely crushed. And I think it was really hard to kind of watch her have all these new, heavy, mm-hmm. hard feelings just like erupt and just seeing you know, as a parent, like, you know, when you see fear and your child dies, like, you know, just the fear of like, I'm never going to be able to hold my dog again, was just like absolutely crushing. And so when my father passed away, like I was expecting a similar response, maybe even one that was more, more intense. But what I found is that after she shed some tears and she had her feelings, she used a lot of the same language that we gave her with Snuffy. Mm. Uh, in regards to my dad Mm. so it was interesting to see her listen to what we told her about snuffy and how we talked to her and use that very same language to to my dad and so we told her that you know snuffy lives in our memories gospel thomas type stuff you know that snuffy is all around us you know there's a thin veil things like that like snuffy is always going to be with us in that sense and she used that same language with my dad. She said, no, well, grandpa will always live in my heart. Mm. Grandpa will always live in my memories. You know, grandpa is all around me, even if I can't see him. My mom bought her a picture after he died of her and him, I think it was two Christmases ago. And she carries that with her to school. She keeps it in her backpack. So that's like her kind of, I guess, physical way of being able to see, you know, grandpa, know that grandpa is is always there. Mm. But what I was really like most amazed about was that she was more concerned about me than she was anything else. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, like she said to me, she said, Daddy, it may make me choke up. She said, Daddy, your your dad died. And she said, I can't imagine how hard that must be. Mm-hmm. And she was just constantly asking me, like, are you okay? You know, can I do anything for you? Drawing me special pictures, making me special crafts, you know, giving me her favorite stuffed animals at night. She said, all my love is in this stuffed animal. She would give it to me keep next to my bed at night and I know like she has a huge heart and it's just bursting with all sorts of love but like it was really on full display after my dad passed away and I was just like you know wow like what a beautiful moment for all of us in the midst of a very difficult and horrendous season of life and uh mm-hmm. it all it made me feel good too because it made me feel like we're doing something right you know because sometimes mm-hmm. as a parent you can get so down on yourself that like mm-hmm. am i raising like a terrorist you know like you know it's like <laughs> am i what am i doing a good job you know but like when you have those moments where you see your child like do something like that you're just like wow you know just take a step back and 
appreciate appreciate what it is. So yeah. her ability to empathize with your grief and then also allow it. Yeah. Right. At such a young age. I think when we think back to maybe our own upbringings, knowing there wouldn't be a safe place for that. Yep. I wonder if that has been even healing for you. I mean, like you said, feeling like you've done something right, healing to know that your kid at the age of six is able to, in her own ways, process this and will be better equipped to process pain along the line. Yeah. You know, and I've tried to be really open with her, you know, like there's, especially over the summer, because like he passed away in March and then it was like one month of school left and then she was home for the summer. And so it was a hard summer just because I felt like I was navigating through a lot of things. My wife is in school and so I was home with her a lot. And there were days when I just said to her, like, I said, daddy's just having a really hard day, mm-hmm. you know, and daddy's just not feeling it today. And I just tried to be really open with her and she would, you know, oh, that's okay, daddy. You know, and she would like understand like her, her ability, like you said, to empathize was just remarkable mm-hmm. to me, but it also... I tried to be as open with her as I could, you know, with her being only six without putting too much on her, just because I wanted her to see that, like you said, like, it's okay to have these feelings. It's okay to not be okay. Like you're going to experience things in your life where it's going to hurt and it's going to take you back. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, especially like when I shut my podcast down for three months, you'd ask me all the time, like, are you doing any podcasts? I'm like, no, I'm just taking a break. You know, oh, shit, because... Because of grandpa. And I said, yes, I just having a hard, a hard time. And I think now it's just a time where I need to do other things than do that. So just giving her, I think, those kinds of tools that maybe she'll look back on this time of our life together when she has similar times of her own life down the road and she'll remember that. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good not to show them that everything has to be fixed. Yeah. Because there's no fixing this. And mm-hmm. I felt like I was doing a decent job of this as a parent on my daughter. I think she either broke up with a boyfriend or something. And she came to me and she said, mom, I'm not okay, but I will be okay at some point. But right now I'm not. And it was good for me, even as a parent to be like, this is something we can't fix. And so again, I was learning from her. And then now I'm, I'm in that process of not trying to fix when somebody's in pain, holding space, right. giving wide open room for grief right. and not trying to just solve it quickly. And I found that to make myself better, Yeah. when we try to fix somebody else's grief, it is really about us That's right. trying to regulate our own nervous system instead of giving space and room for the other person. My husband, he is very involved in the Illumin Foundation, which is started by Richard Rohr and it's for men. Mm-hmm. And they talk a lot in their men's work and way of counsel that when someone's in pain, you almost shouldn't even touch them at yeah. times. Yeah. Like you really have to know what to do when, because even touching them may feel like they're you're trying to fix them. And so yep. it's so uncomfortable, but it's beautiful that you're helping your daughter to navigate the uncomfortable parts of being human and modeling that like you're a human too, Jordan. Yep. Yep. Yeah. She, she came home the other day from school and she was really upset because there was a kid who she was best friends with at kindergarten. She said she was best friends with him, but they were tight on the playground, I guess. And so all (laughs) of a sudden this year, you know, he says to her, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Right. And she was just crushed. I mean, she was crying after dinner one night and she was, I mean, weeping and looking at us like, what, what, what can you do to make it better? And we said to her, like, 
we're going to talk to your teacher because she has some ongoing things with this kid. And we're going to talk to your teacher and just make sure your teacher knows, you know, but there's nothing that we can do to fix it right now. You know, but we said what we can do is we can be a safe place for you to share whatever you need to share. So you cry for as long as you need to cry. You know, if you want to hit your pillow, go hit your pillow. You know, we'll just sit right here with you and be with you. And she cried for a while. And then eventually she kind of got it all out. And then we talked a little bit and it kind of went on with the rest of our day. But I think just giving her that freedom, like you said, is such an important thing. Not to try to fix it, not to try to cover it up, not to try to spiritually bypass it. You know, it's all going to be better someday, whatever. But it hurts and it's terrible and you can feel it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah thanks all right <laughs> our last question is well i guess we have a couple more questions if you could preach one message to a stadium of fifty thousand people about what you've learned through this very difficult journey with grief and those of us who are listeners who are venturing into that more nuanced open-hearted faith path what would you say to them uh, i think i would say just what i was talking about with Jordan, you know, to, to feel it. You know, you clear your calendar as much as you're able. Not everybody can clear everything off their calendar, but as clear as take away as many things as you possibly can for a season and just feel whatever you've got to feel because the world, even the church at times, like we said earlier, you know, they're going to tell you to keep going, you know, to at some point, you got to get over it. You know, you got to push past it. You got to get on with your life. You've got to hurry up to catch up where everybody else is. But you don't, you don't need to do that. You know, like like that quote that you read earlier from the book, like loss should hurt you, mm-hmm. right? Like loss should change you. It should cause you to reassess things, reorient yourself and, and your life. Like things that were once really important to you, all of a sudden might not feel that important anymore. And things that didn't feel important all of a sudden might feel like they're now the center of your universe, like they're really important. So it takes time, I think, to process all that stuff and what it means for you and your future. Because, you know, loss and grief, like as terrible as it is, like I'm finding it has the ability to propel you into new places in your life. You know, my friend Alexander Shia talks about how, you know, like loss is like the birth of something new you know like the womb is a dark place but it gives mm-hmm. birth to something new and something light and something beautiful and sometimes when you're going through that darkness and it feels like there's no light at the end of the tunnel there is but it just takes some time to find it you know and i think sometimes we want to get on with our life and we want to push 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 and keep going 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 and we don't create the space in order to figure out what that light is at the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. and uh, kind of moving into something, something new and something, something different. And, you know, some people I found are not going to understand that. Uh, some people will, some people won't, but that's, I think how you really begin to see, you know, who your friend really are kind of going forward. Mm-hmm. And what I've discovered is that mm-hmm. some people won't be able to handle your grief. And so they're going to keep their distance. They might even encourage you to kind of move on because your discomfort creates so much discomfort in them. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And other people, like you said, they're going to sit with you. They're going to sit with you silently at times. They're going to reach out and they'll ask how you're doing. Do you need anything? Encourage you to take your time and they'll tell you, don't feel like you have to rush for anybody, things like that. They're going to show you grace. Mm. I think that those people are the people that need to be your people mm. and the ones who keep their distance, you know, who really want nothing to do with this season of your life, like as hard as it might be, because as close as you might feel to some of those people, 
Like there are some of the people that maybe need to be kept at a distance going forward when you go into this new season of your life. So I think that this time of your life, this grief is a real way of showing you your people. Mm. So those would be kind of the yeah. couple of things that I've learned <laughs> that I would pass along to the wow. stadium of 50,000. <laughs> uh, well, I feel like you've passed that along too. So many people, including us, like just the permission. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, he's taking a break from his podcast. Who does that? That's crazy. And yeah. Liz is really good at this too. Liz is so good at being like, oh my gosh, Esther, so what about social media or so what? We'll just cancel. And I'm like, whatever. Because oh, I, because that workaholic, evangelical, busy, busy oh, yeah. and Western mindset. I'm not even, yeah. they're so tied, right? the Christian Western, I don't even know mindset. And it's like, go, go, go. And sometimes I'll be like, Liz, I, I just can't do this. And she's like, okay, don't. Yeah. I think like you said, Glenn, like it's definitely such a hard thing to do because you want to move forward as a person, right? You want to be experiencing life. You want to be doing what you're doing and grief. I mean, grief comes for so many different reasons, right? We mourn so many different things in our life. Yeah. So this could be not even about like a physical loss. This could be some other different kind of loss, right? Where you're at a place where your entire being is saying, you need to stop. Yeah. You need to pause. Yeah. You need to have minimal things on your schedule. Yeah. And you're going to get pushback from yourself for that and from others for that. And so yeah. really moving towards healing oftentimes feels like you're going against the waves a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, my, my wife's approach is very similar to uh, Esther, what you said about Liz, because she's, I remember sitting on the couch with her and saying to my wife, like, I feel like I'm going to do something crazy. Like, I'm going to just clear my calendar for the summer, pretty much. And no podcast, no interviews. And she's like, okay, that's what you need to do. I'm like, but we have like Patreon supporters, you know, and I said, they signed up knowing they're going to get a new episode every week and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, what if we lose supporters? You know, that's like a part of our income. And she looked at me, she said, if, if people stop supporting you because you lost your dad, mm -hmm. she said, they were never supporting you in the beginning to begin with. Mm -hmm. And she said, right. let them go. That sounds like, all right, that's, that's like, it's a pretty good perspective, you know, but she has that same kind of mentality, which was helpful for me because I was fighting with the internal voice of stopping things and just keep going, blah, blah, blah. But she was really kind of that outside voice to give me that perspective. I would really appreciate it. So. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that you did that for yourself. I watched you struggle with that a little bit, just even in kind of like planning this podcast, we'd say, oh, maybe, right? Like maybe at this time, you know, watch yeah. you kind of struggle with it. And then when you finally said to me, you know, like, I can't do anything for the next three months. I was like, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Like yeah. that's what you needed, but only you can do that for yourself, right? Like yeah. only you can find it in yourself to do that. So Thank you. every time we in some ways broadcast that part of our journey, it gives other people permission to do the That's same right. thing. And so That's you've right. given a lot of people permission to say, no, I need a break because this has been really hard yeah. and I'm a human being. Thank you. The end. Right. Thank you. Yeah. I was thinking back on when you came right out and you said to us, I'm not going to do this. Hmm. Even just us talking about it here, this is how it really plays out in real life. Like saying no to interviews that could help your, like our interview could help your what if project, right? Yep. This is collaboration and all those things that get us ahead and get us ahead and get us ahead. Yep. And it's like, mm, I don't know, the body, the soul is saying, take a break, yeah. process this, listen to your pain. It is a wise 
teacher. Yeah. Yes. You are allowed to be a human being. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, I love that. Okay. (laughs) Let's switch gears from 50,000 people to your dinner table with your family, with your Mm -hmm. wife and your daughter, Jordan. If you could know for sure. Right. That she was listening to what you said. And you did tell us a little bit about how you were surprised at what she did learn and listen to you about when her, when the dog died, when her dog died. But if you could say something and she would take it with her on her life's journey, Hmm. what would be your message to her about God, faith, and herself? Yeah, I think I would tell her that it's, it's never too late to remember who you are. You know, and I would tell her that, like, you're going to go through some things in this life. And there's going to be times when you forget who you really are. Mm. You're going to act in ways that are unkind. You're going to do things that are unthinkable for you right now. You'll say things that are terrible. You'll think things that, you know, maybe nightmares are made of. You know, I do too, mm-hmm. right? It's only human. We're all human. But I would tell her that there's there's a divine spark inside of you, I think, a candle of sorts that is never going to go out, no matter how much it becomes covered up. Mm. And I would tell her that for me, you know, the quickest way for me to remember who I am is I go back to the stories of Jesus. I think that's one of the things, the puzzle pieces from my upbringing that I think is a good piece that I've carried with me. Because for me, you know, Jesus reminds me of what is best and what is most true about myself. And over my 40 plus years of life, you know, he's, him and his stories have become like a mirror of sorts that I can stare into when I feel like I've lost my way. And that mirror has a way of reflecting back to me a reminder of who I am and, you know, in my true self. And I would tell her, I'd be sure to tell her that maybe that'll be true for you. Maybe Jesus will be the same for you. Maybe it won't, you know, maybe your mirror will be something different and that's okay. But I would encourage her to find out what her mirror is what is the thing that wakes you up to give you a sense of life and kind of rejuvenates you and helps you remember who you really are know what that is as you get older and stare into it when you lose your way in order to remember yeah that was so beautiful this has been wonderful amazing we thank you for your vulnerability i know this has been a really hard year for you so to be able to come on and just share with us a little bit of what you've gone through and processed with yourself and your daughter. It's really just, it's truly an honor that you've been willing to do that. So we're really thankful. And can you tell our listeners where they can find you if they want more of your your content and, and your fun? Yeah. And first of all, I do want to thank both of you for, for your grace, because you both have been able to help me kind of make that transition from do, do, do to stop stop, stop. Because I even remember I said to my wife, I'm like, these people want to have me on their podcast. <laughs> I've been pushing them off for a while. And she's like, but they're your friends. Like they're going to understand. I'm like, I know, but like, it's a podcast. Like, and I get what it's like to have a schedule and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I just don't think I can do it. She's like, then tell them that you can't do it. Like, it's okay. And when I told you guys that, like just your response back to me was so full of grace. And like I said before, like, these are my people, like, these are the people who mm-hmm. I want to keep close to me. So mm-hmm. I don't want to hang up without saying thank you uh, to both of you. But uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, social media. You can go to Facebook, just look up my name, Glenn Siepert. It's S-I-E-P-E-R-T. Uh, Twitter and Instagram. The handle's a little bit tricky. It's what if project, but the I is a one instead of an I because somebody else took what if project. So it's what one F 
project. And then TikTok is the normal uh, What If Project. And then the website is whatifproject.net. You can find me on YouTube, podcasts, all the different places. So, Well, thank you, Glenn, so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope that this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on our website, deconstructingmamas.com. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter when you get there. If you'd like to support the podcast, join our Patreon network for just $3 a month and have access to our private community with all kinds of extras. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts or just tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.